little hot. Something's going on, right? I hope that's it. I hope the last sermon wasn't that bad. Kind of, kind of starts getting close to home there, doesn't it? Uh, but uh, uh, Gary reminded me this morning. Uh, this is supposed to be a national day of prayer for what our country's going through, uh, and I think uh, it's good to start with that. Okay, um, let's pray. Father, we confess our anxiety. We confess our little fear in the back of our mind. We know our country is facing problems, but that means that people are facing problems. And that we are called to be involved in each other's lives, but to do so in a healthy way right now, to slow down this virus. Father, I confess I don't understand why you put viruses in this world. I'm sure there's a reason. Maybe one day I'll find out. But as we face the challenge of this particular virus and the impact it has on lives and jobs, and we're baffled. So we ask you, Father, to reach into our hearts and stimulate our hope. Help us to see you, Father. Help us to know you're close. Help us to feel the arms and the eyes and the voice of Jesus. Help us, Father, hold on to you because we know that you're our rock. We lift up, Father, those who are already experiencing sickness and those that are yet to be touched. We ask you, Father, to bring your healing into our lives and their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been following Jesus as Matthew's been telling his story. And one of the things that, that always... Sure. So I just want to encourage you all with that, that you got the opportunity to shine, let it show. Thanks, Joe, because that's what we're going to talk about today. Good, good introduction. Because right. <laughs> um, as, as I've tracked through, as I've tracked through Matthew and I, I've, I've looked at what he's trying to, to draw us into, uh, the life of Jesus and the difference that makes. And as I, as I tried to get a handle on that, I, I come to this passage 
And in the first part of chapter 18, the disciples come to Jesus and said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we've always interpreted that to mean that, you know, they were, they were trying to one-up one another. They were, you know, they were, they were trying to, to, you know, kind of start an argument. And, and there's justification for that because by the time you get to the end of chapter 20, they are arguing over chief seats and so forth. But as I read it this time, all of a sudden it hit me. That's a good question. Isn't it? I mean, you just think about all the books on the shelves in the stores and all the stuff you can buy from Amazon. And uh, there's this passion for us to know what is the best. How can we be our best? How can we be the best father, the best child, the, the best parent, the best, you know, who's the greatest? What does that look like? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus, a great follower of Jesus? That's what they're asking. And I think that's a good question. Uh, and, and so as I, I, I thought about that question and I began to read this central section that starts right at the end of chapter 17 and goes through the middle of chapter 20, as they travel from way north all the way to Jerusalem, as they make that trip, they're being taught. They're in seminary. They're in graduate school. Jesus is, is training them in, in a more intense way as they make that trip. I'll show you why in just a minute. But I, I, I want you to understand that this central section is wrapped in three predictions by Jesus. Three times he stops and says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. When I get to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me. Over and over, three times. And you go, wow, did Matthew make that up? No, Mark says the same thing. The three times are in Mark, three times are in Luke. John doesn't, doesn't talk about that. He uses a different way to talk about the life of Jesus. But as, as you look at that, over and over and over, the disciples were impressed that Jesus told them he's headed to die. He's laying down his life. Well, that's kind of a relevant theme in, right now in our world, isn't it? Like Joe says, what is it that we can do to, to serve, to lay down our lives for our family and our country and the people that we hadn't even met yet? What is it that we can do? How can we be involved in that service? And so as, as, as that central section talks about, I, I want us to kind of follow that. Because I think greatness in the kingdom, Jesus is going to answer the question in those four chapters. He's going to talk about, we're in this together. We're not isolated. We depend on one another. We are attached as in a family. And so as you look at it, he starts at Caesarea Philippi, way up north, and he says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And as he, as we looked last week, immediately following, 
as he heads down the mountain or on the high mountain, he, there, he's transfigured. Our eyes are open. We're able to see that Jesus is more than just a human being. He's come with a bigger vision. He is my son. Listen to him, God says from heaven. And as we do that, the disciples leave that mountain only seeing Jesus. That's important. That's where their focus is. What's our focus? What's going to get us through this? Only seeing Jesus. At Capernaum, he repeats, Then they came together in Galilee, and he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. You'll notice he repeats the phrase exactly. On the third day, he will be raised to life. That's why I highlighted that. He's going to die, but in a very different way. He's not going to stay dead. That's the core, Andy, right there. That's the core. That's what we get in touch with, that Jesus is the life, and he's going to show us what that life is. And that's what he does from Capernaum all the way to Jerusalem. So let me show you what that looks like. It's in your handout. It's in your bulletin. Uh, We've got another one of those chiasms. I want to remind you, this is the way that a first century Jew outlines a speech or a book. He doesn't do it with like we do it. We're taught in speech class. Roman numeral one, A, B, C, little a, you know, so forth. They didn't do it that way. They did it this way. And so you have stories that balance each other. The reason for that is that one story can't get it all. And so you have two stories, and when you put those together, you get a richer picture. That's why they do it. That's the way their poems are. That's the way Psalms is written. There's a lot of this in in Proverbs as well. And so they want you to see something, but they want you to hold it in tension. There's There's something and then something, and you put those two together, and that's what tells you what's real. Okay, those things held in tension. And so, for four chapters, he's going to go through and tell you that story. Luke does the same thing, except he uses ten chapters. And he tells a lot of parables. And he uses the same structure in Luke. The same diagram. The children don't pay tax. Hmm. Well, we're going to look at those stories in just a minute, but I want you to see as he enters Jerusalem, on the road to Jerusalem, he issues the third warning, and this time he becomes more specific. Now, Jesus was going to Jerusalem on the way. He took the twelve aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. On the third day, he will be raised to life. That makes all the difference in the world. So I want you to understand that's the context. Why is Jesus going to suffer? Because in doing so, he's going to bring a life into this world 
that God wants us to have. He's going to restore. He's going to recreate. There's a new exodus. He's going to bring his family back together again. It's, it's all there as he frames this out, as he begins to talk about it, and he shows it, and he shows parables, and he, and he, he talks in, in, in images, and it's important. So let's break it down. That chiasm gives you five principles, five things that are core ideas that Jesus wants them to get. And it's not a mistake, it's not an accident that he doesn't start talking about some of these things until Peter confesses him at Caesarea Philippi before he tells him for the very first time he's going to Jerusalem to die. They weren't ready to hear it yet. They couldn't stand it. Peter didn't want to accept it. He rejected it. But Jesus over and over tells them, in this world, it's broken. And the only way broken things get fixed is that someone enters into the pain and brings things back together again. Someone is willing to, to invest in the hurt in order to bring healing. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing God's healing into a broken world. So let's hear what he thinks is important. What's greatest? What does the greatest look like? Well, the first one, the two outside ones, is there's a story that, you know, the tax collector comes and he catches Peter and he says, Peter, does your, does your master pay the temple tax? Some teachers didn't pay temple tax in the first century. They got a pass. Is your teacher one that pays the temple tax? Peter says, well, of course he is. You know, we don't want any problems. You know, the IRS is here at the door, knocking on the door. We want your money. And Peter says, okay, man, here it is. And he didn't have anything to give him. So he goes to Jesus to find out, okay, Jesus, I told him we're going to pay the tax, but, you know, who's, gonna, who's got the check? Why is that important? Why does he tell that story? That seems oh, strange. Well, let me show you the tax, and then I'll tell you why it's important. Here's the tax right here. This, whoop, wait a minute. Where's my little doodle pencil? No, it didn't work. See up in the, the top one that says shekel of tire? That's the temple tax. The reason it's the temple tax is it's 92% silver. It's the most pure coin minted in the first century. Okay? That's the only ones the priest would accept. It's the hard, one of the hardest ones to counterfeit as well because it's so heavy. It's pure silver. It's easy to test, to see. This is what the temp, money changers in the temple are going to uh, be doing when Jesus gets there. It's changing the ones on the bottom. Those are all called denarius, different ones where the Caesars put their face so they could advertise to the community. This is, this is Twitter in the first century, is your coins. Okay, that's Twitter. You put your picture on it so they'll know who you are. Four of the denarius equal one of the temple tax coins. Okay, that's equal to four. Now, I want you to understand a little bit. A denarius is a day's pay for a, a regular worker. So you get one. Temple tax is two denarius a year. 
shekel is four denarius. And Jesus, uh, I lost my train. There's so much in this passage, I just... get back to it in just a minute. I want you to see the children, the point of the story is the king's children don't pay tax. You don't have to pay to be in the presence of the king. The king's children don't pay the tax. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. The second, the last part of the story is the workers that go out into the field, they're paid one denarius. Everybody, even if they didn't work all day. They're all paid the same. What's the point? The point is that everyone is valuable and everyone's part of the family. That's why Jesus is telling those two stories. You're part of the king's family. You don't have to pay tax. And everybody gets paid the same regardless of how long they've worked. Everybody's the same. They're equally valuable. And so when you look at those two, then the second step in is... The kingdom, he sets a child in their midst. And the kingdom is like this child. Well, what is that? What is it about a child? Well, they're accepting. They're sim- they're, they have simple ideas and simple beliefs. They, it's not all that complex. They're committed. Have you ever been loved by a child? It's one of the greatest things in the world. Right? And that's what, it, that's what it's based on. That's what the center of it is. There's self-conscious dependence. What's the, other, the balance on the other side? The balance on the other side is the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and said, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? What, what do I have completed is going to guarantee me that I'm going to be in heaven. I'm going to be in the olam haba, the world to come. Jesus says, well, go sell everything you've got. First he asks him, have you kept the commands? And then sell everything you've got. What's the point of the story? The point of the story, Jesus says, is that it's easier for, a, it's, 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 it's not easy for a rich man to enter. It's like being a camel going through the eye of a needle, right? You can't enter with pride. You can't enter with dependence on all your stuff. You, you can't, that's not where it is. You need to be like a child, he says. That's where greatness comes from. The next step in, life in the family of the king. I, I, this one is important. I'm going to stop for a minute here in the passage. I want you to see it. In in chapter 18, it says, If anyone caused one of uh, these little ones, you might want to underline little ones, because you'll notice it's again in chapter 10, uh, 18 verse 10, and also in 18 verse 14, 
he repeats little ones three times. Little ones, little ones, little ones. What does that mean? What's the little ones? Well, the little ones are those who are insignificant. He uses the word micro. We still use that word today. Very same Greek word, micro. The micro ones, the ones that aren't noticed. They're central. They're extremely important. In fact, they're so important that if you cause one of these micros to stumble, to be taken away from the presence of Jesus, it's not good for you. Let me show you the illustration. This, on the, on the left side, uh, your left, is a millstone setting on the cone. There's a cone like this underneath that, and then this millstone has got a cone on the inside, an inverted cone, and it sits on it, and then you put a, a pole, and these two girls are mimicking what you would do. Uh, they would put a donkey, the first century would put a donkey on the, on, the, on the pole rather than, that's the word that they use here, is a donkey millstone, a large millstone, one you can't turn by yourself. And so they put the wheat in the top, and they turn it, and the flour comes out the bottom. Now, the one on the left is at Capernaum. Capernaum had an industry that created these. You see the basalt stone? There's tons of these things at Capernaum. And so the archaeologists believe they had a business of creating millstones that they sold all over the northern part of Israel. And so Jesus is giving them an illustration that they all know extremely well. They can see it. They've seen it. And Jesus says to them, if you offend the little one and cause them to fall, go away, fall, depart, stumble, is the word that he uses, it's better for you to have that rock tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Wow. It's important to understand the significance of everybody. Not just the rich, not just the important. Jesus says the least of these, the little ones, are extremely important. The millstones. And then on the outside, it says... Treasure your brother. If your brother sins against you, go to your brother. Work it out. If you can't work it out, go get some help. Go get a couple of people. So that you, you can hear, people can hear with different ears. People that are, haven't been involved in the conflict. Because that conflict twists how you see things, doesn't it? So you get some people to hear both of you and then if that doesn't work you bring it to the body and if that doesn't work you treat the person who needs to repent whether it be you or the other person as if they were a tax collector and you go wow you mean throw them out and treat them bad no you just it means you start over again you see Matthew was a tax collector right now he's an apostle you treat him like you would treat Matthew, right? You start over again. You evangelize them. 
They need to be evangelized because they're outside. And so you have that treasuring of the family. On the other side is the commitment in a marriage, the value that you place on that, that commitment is an illustration of, of the strength of that commitment. But how does it all, what holds it all together? You've got the principles, the four principles that help define what it means to follow Jesus, what that life looks like. It's, it's for everybody. It's for the least. It's, 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 it, it, the center of it is caught in a parable by Jesus that most of us have heard. The parable of the unforgiving servant. I won't read it. I want you to just picture. What you have is a king who comes and he has a servant who, uh, who owes him some money. And it says that servant owes him 10,000 talents. Now, the reason I showed you the money is I want you to understand what a talent is. A talent is a thousand denarii. In other words, a thousand days pay. What would that be? Eh, about three years. Okay. So a talent is basically three years of pay. And it says that this guy owes the king 10,000 talents. Well, 10,000 talents comes out to about 100 million denarii. So the guy owes 100 million days labor to the king, 100 million. You think Jesus is exaggerating a little bit? What he's done is taken the largest Greek number that you have that you can write, 10,000, and the largest unit of money that you that they recognized a talent put those two together and said on the extreme side of this you have to understand that we owe God a hundred million days pay that's several years okay several years it's not something you can pay you can't pay the debt and the guy says oh God, King, give me more time. If you'll just give me more time, I'll pay it off. You see how ridiculous the story is? Jesus is using almost comedy, except it's more be darker comedy. It's a tragedy. Because this guy doesn't recognize what he really owes the king. You can put a number on it. But he doesn't realize what's standing between him and the king. This huge debt that he can never pay. And so the king says, well, you need to pay it. The guy throws himself on the mercy of the court. The king forgives him. Now put yourself in, your, in their shoes. Think about it for a minute. You owe a hundred million days pay. And you just got forgiven. Wow. That's what our world needs. The recognition that God isn't 
the kind of God that's keeping the debts. He's not tied into that. He wants that off your back. He wants to take that away. And how to be great in the kingdom? It all starts right here. So this guy has a chance to learn the lesson of the kingdom, right? Forgiveness. And that's what he does, right? He goes out, he meets a guy that owes him eh, a few dollars, not a lot. And he says, oh man, the king gave me this relief on this hundred million dollar or hundred million days pay bill that I had. And so I'm so grateful, I'm going to forgive you. That's not what he says. He says, pay me my little debt, 100, 100 days of pay. He even starts to choke the guy. And the king says, no, you don't understand. This is the essential. Forgiveness is the essential at the center of the kingdom. That's the point of this chiasm. As you work out from the outside in, the center is forgiveness. That's what God has given us, and that's what he expects us to give each other. That's the parable. That's the point. But how do you do it? How do you do it? I want to recommend a book to you real quick, and then we'll finish. This was written several years ago by Lewis Smedes. He was a theologian at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. It's called The Art of Forgiving. And in the book, he doesn't really focus on the theory of forgiving. He talks about the mechanics. How do you forgive? When is forgiveness necessary? When is, what, what does it look like? What does the behavior look like? And so I want to pass on the three central points of this book because I want you to understand that there's a mechanics, there's, there's a behavior around forgiveness. And I, it's at the center of what it means to be great in the kingdom. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? The one who is able to forgive. That's the point of what Matthew's trying to get across. That's the point of the story. What is it? The first one is, you have to rediscover and treasure the humanity of the one who hurt you or yours. What happens when you get hurt? I mean, really hurt. It's happening in our country every day. And it's getting more intense. You get the anger going and you dehumanize the person you disagree with. They're an idiot. They're bad. They're evil. They're stupid. They're whatever. Isn't that true? They hurt me, so they're bad. And they may be bad. But how do you begin to try to let them be in a world of forgiveness? How do you extend forgiveness? How do you let go of the hurt that you have? Because that's basically what forgiveness is, is letting go of the hurt. The first step is to treasure their humanity. That's an individual person. They're valuable. The second one is this. We have to surrender our right to get even. We have to surrender our right to get even. 
because you can never get even. Ever. Why? Because your experience of your pain isn't felt by the other person. Right? It's not felt by them. You don't feel it when you hurt somebody as much as they feel it. And so there's a spiral of violence. What happens is, oh, you hurt me. You hit me with your elbow. Some of you have seen this in your kids. He hit me. What? Well, that was a little stronger than... We always give more than we get. Have you noticed that? Always. And it starts spiraling up or down, whichever way the spiral goes. The spiral of violence. The only way to break it is to surrender your right to get even. It's the only way to break it. I think that's tremendously insightful. The third one is you have to revise, revising our feelings towards the person we forgive. In other words, we have to intentionally change away from the anger and away from retribution and the feeling that we have the right to get even. We have to let go of that and we have to let our feelings go with that. The hurt. Because that's the only way you can forgive. What happened in the parable? The guy goes out to the man who owes him a little bit and starts choking him out for the debt. Right after he'd been forgiven, 100 million days pay. Right? That's the point Jesus is making. So I put it together like this. Forgiveness is surrendering to God the collection of the debt you believe you are owed. That's the only way you can forgive, I think. Now, do you understand why Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die? He let go of the debt that we paid him, that we owed him. And we owed him more than 100 million days pay. We owe him our lives. It's his world. Why is that important? I think it's important in our world right now. The early church had a crisis. It was surrounded by people that hated them. People were killing them. And they were able to shine like stars, you know, thank you for my conclusion. Because they were willing to stand up and forgive. They were willing to engage the little ones in their society. They're the ones that went out on the hills and picked up the babies that had been exposed to die and brought them home and put them in their house and cared for them. They were known early on when they finally had places to, 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 had places to worship in, buildings. They were known as the place that if you didn't want your little child, you could leave it on the steps of the church. That's where all that started because they were known for people who would forgive and to take and to love even without it seeming to be rational. They shined like stars. 
that's what changed their world, and that's the only thing I think that's going to change our world. Is when we're able to forgive and shine like stars at doing the kind of life that Jesus is talking about here, a family life, and we're in it together.